Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. showed up for church. I'm super proud of you. you. Give yourselves a hand. Go ahead. Um, you made it. It even snowed outside, so you had an excuse, um, as if that was an excuse in Alaska. Apparently, it's an excuse now to close school at any time that you would like, um, but oh well, here we are. Hey, um, we're in our series. We're in week number two, um, looking at the age of the Messiah King. And what do you do when the Messiah doesn't meet your expectations? In fact, that's exactly what the nation of Israel is going to be dealing with. Uh, speaking of which, I realized today, uh, because staff mentioned it when I showed up, that I do not have a Christmas sweater on. I know. Um, and I just want to remind you that last year, after nine years of wearing a Christmas sweater throughout the month of December, every time I preached, I told you that I was not going to do it this year. Um, and so I'm just keeping my promise. Speaking of unmet expectations, um, I'm not wearing one next week either, just to be clear uh, with, with everyone in the room. It's just too much of a distraction. Mostly for me, but also for others um, in, in the room as well, because I have some hideous Christmas sweaters. Um, so there you go. Hey, uh, anybody look forward to things with sort of this level of anticipation, excitement, like birthdays or holidays, and you have the app on your phone, you're counting down the days till you arrive at that moment. Anybody in the room like that? Like, I can't wait. It's almost. I have a daughter. I'm not going to mention her name because I have an ongoing deal with my girls now that if I say their name from the platform, I owe them $5. Trust me, they are holding me to it. So an unnamed daughter of mine is obsessive about birthdays, holidays, trips. Like, it is the only conversation you get to have for about three months leading up to that day. And, and what you can tell is as you're communicating, it's like the expectations are just getting higher and higher and higher for what that moment, that day is going to be. And as a parent, you start to freak out a little. Like, oh no, there's supposed to be a giraffe in our living room for breakfast. And right, like the list just goes on and on of everything that should happen on that day because it's going to be the best day ever. And you had this feeling like they are going to be so disappointed 
no matter what I do. Any parent in the room experienced this before? Okay, well, fine. Then my daughter's going to come hang out at your place um, coming into her next birthday, uh, and you can get that experience for yourself. This is the experience that Israel is having. In fact, it's the experience that Israel has had over and over again. And last week, we looked into um, uh, these uncommon names of Jesus, and we're specifically staying dialed in on a particular passage. We're, we're looking into um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 specifically. And today's title is The Unseen Realm, this kingdom that exists, and yet you and I may not always perceive it, at least not in the ways that we think we should be able to. And Isaiah is a unique prophet in this sense. Isaiah is prophesying both hope to the nation of Israel and Judah because it has been split at this time, but he's also prophesying hurt. He's prophesying some extremely negative things that are coming their way, and then it's also um, couched in the language of, but the deliverer, but God. He will. He's going to show up on the scene. He's going to bring rescue. He's going to bring deliverance to you as a people. And I want to give a little bit of context to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which is the passage that we're in for these weeks. And I want to back up a little bit and look all the way back at verse 2 in Isaiah, because he's actually declaring some extraordinary things in terms of deliverance for the nations. Let's take a look at it together. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. In Alaska, we can uniquely relate to that. But he's talking about spiritual darkness, oppression, and persecution. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. All future tense. They will rejoice before you as people rejoicing at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. In other words, the day is coming when all of your military gear will be laid down. You can burn it in the fire because you're never going to need it again. A deliverer is coming. Rescue will come. What's interesting is that this particular moment, they are living in freedom, but rebellion. At this particular moment, they are living in a time where they are not being ruled by other nations. They've seen God deliver them. They've experienced God's deliverance in the past. But they are also now at a point where they not only had discovered God, but they have dismissed him as their God. <clears throat> and then this passage, Isaiah 9, verse 6. Here's how all this is going to happen. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. If you were here last week, I'm um, hearing Pastor Paul's message and taking each of these titles uniquely of Jesus. There are lots of names of God in the Old Testament, but these are uniquely of the person of Jesus. This is what his name is going to be. This is who he is going to be to you. Wonderful counselor. And that word wonderful is the word used for miraculous. Like he's a miracle 
counselor. He's not just a good counselor, but he's a miracle counselor. He is the mighty God. This word mighty, the same word used for David's mighty men. He is a warrior God. He is the everlasting father. If you read in the Old Testament, they say, and he laid with his fathers and he rested with his fathers. He slept with his fathers that every leader of Israel had died and been gone forever. But this God, this deliverer is going to be everlasting and he will be prince of peace. Paul made the point last week that he's not just a peaceful prince, but the word used here is commander of. Like, he's not just a peaceful prince. He's actually the commander of peace. It is in his control. It is in his power. It's his to freely give, to issue, to distribute as he wills. He's not just a peaceful prince. He is the prince of peace. He goes on, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. If you're Israel, you're going to come back to this prophecy over and over again, and your expectation, the anticipation for the eternal, miracle-working warrior God to come to your rescue, to your defense, is going to grow and grow and grow over time. But there are also two other names given to this coming king in the book of Isaiah. One of them is the term Messiah. Messiah simply means the anointed one, the one appointed by God or anointed by God. And it's actually not exclusively used for the person of Jesus. This same term, the anointed one or Messiah, is also used for other kings that God uses to direct the nation of Israel, foreign kings that God uses to direct the nation of Israel. And yet, a Messiah is coming, a deliverer is coming, an anointed one from God is coming yet in the future. But the other term is this one, Emmanuel. Now, I know you're probably looking at it and you're like, doesn't he know Emmanuel is spelled with an E and not an I? You're going to find out why. I have an I here in just a moment because in the Old Testament, it was spelled with an I, Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply means God with us. Not God apart from us, not God separate from us, but God with us. And Isaiah uses this term just two chapters earlier in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, he has come to King Ahaz, and he said to King Ahaz, you don't need to worry about the two nations you're afraid are coming to conquer you. God has said, I will take care of them if you will trust me. And so then Isaiah says to Ahaz, you just ask God for a sign. He says, you ask him for the biggest sign you can think of. He says, make it as high as the heavens or make it as deep into the earth as you want. But you ask God for a sign and he will show you a sign that he is going to be the one who rescues you. And the hope is that this would call Ahaz out of rebellion. But Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. In other words, I actually don't believe that God will be my deliverer. I'm not going to do it. And so Isaiah says, fine, then God will give you a sign on his own, but it's going to be a sign that's coming more than 720 years later because you are going to enter into a time of persecution, of suffering, of correction, really is what it is. 
And that's where this verse comes from. It's a popular verse. I think most of us have probably heard it in particular around Christmas time because it directly relates to the nativity. This is what he says, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Since you aren't going to trust him, since you aren't going to ask for one, he will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What's interesting is that if you are a Jew and you heard this term, there was one image that came to mind immediately when you heard the term God with us, and it was the image of the tabernacle in the wilderness. In fact, Israel has been in captivity in Egypt for a long time, 400 plus years in captivity, and God comes on the scene and declares that he is going to deliver them. He is going to rescue them. The anointed one has come, and he is leading them out of Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom, to the promised land. And they get into the wilderness, and God pauses, and he gives them instruction about how he wants to be worshipped, what his law is, how they relate to him and interact with him. And part of that instruction is the building of the tabernacle. This is what's interesting. God never asked for a stone temple to be built. He allowed a stone temple to be built because it was in David's heart to do it, but God actually only ever asked for a tabernacle. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation and you read about what's happening in the heavens there, a tabernacle is described as what is in the heavens, and God is coming forth from a tabernacle. It's all God actually ever asked for, and he asked for it for a really specific reason. Not because tent camping is better than anything else, but because he wanted to reveal something about his character and his nature. And there are all kinds of details about the tabernacle that are really extraordinary, filled with significance, and are pointing towards the Messiah, pointing towards the anointed one, pointing towards Jesus. But one of the most important things is actually the exterior of the tabernacle. The exterior of the tabernacle, and God is explicit about this, is to be made from sacrificial animal skins. And the presence of God resided in the tabernacle, and it was covered in sacrificial skin. Starting to sound familiar? That God with us. God says, I don't want my tabernacle. I don't want my tent to be way outside the camp, away from the people. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put it smack dab in the middle of the camp because what God wants is to be with us, not apart from us, which was totally different than all the other gods and goddesses of the day and even of this day. In fact, to this day, if God comes down and sets up residence with us, he is no longer a full-fledged God. He is a demi-God. But this God, the full bird kernel God of all the universe, this God actually wants to set up camp with his people. He wants it to be known that I want to dwell with my people. I want to be in the midst of my people. I want to be present with my people, and I want to be wrapped in sacrificial skin. And so whenever they packed up camp and moved, God packed up and moved with them. It was God with us, Emmanuel. And back then, I'll make this observation, although they could not see God in person, they could certainly experience God's presence. There was no doubt in the minds of the people that God was among them, that he was with them. And so you 
fast forward to the day of Isaiah, and what's astounding, maybe it's not so astounding when we think about ourselves, What's astounding, though, is that the nation of Israel has an encounter with God. They discover God, and then they dismiss him, and then they encounter him, and then they dismiss him, and then they encounter him, and then they dismiss him. And so now we're at 725 B.C., and the prophet Isaiah is speaking these words to the people, and he's saying, listen, God is going to bring a deliverer, but a time of suffering is coming to correct course. And 15 years after Isaiah prophesies those words, the Assyrian Empire will take over. In fact, he tells them what empire is coming to rule them. And here's the thing. If you're um, in the nation of Israel, if you're part of Judah, you experience the uh, persecution under the Assyrian empire. There was no one who was more brutal than the Assyrians. And you think, where's the deliverer? Where's the Messiah? And what's going to happen from that time all the way up until and after the birth of Jesus is that they will be ruled and dominated by five different empires. The Assyrians will rule them, and then the Babylonians will come and rule them, and then the Persians will come and rule them, and then the Greeks will come and rule them, and then the Romans will come and rule them, and they will be longing for, looking for the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah. Can you imagine 720 years, your grandmother and grandfather and their grandmother and grandfather and their grandmother and grandfather were all waiting for the fulfillment of this promise that was made. And you would begin to think, it's just not going to happen. I mean, I begin to think that when I'm in the drive-thru at Arby's. (laughs) I know it's only an hour that I wait for my food, but I think this is not going to happen. I know they promised me right back there in that little loudspeaker that I could just pull up and pay. I paid, but I got no food yet. Like, like I lose hope at such a rapid pace. My expectations are way up here. The delivery is way down here, and I'm just depressed by the time I get my food, or if I get my food. I may just drive off. I don't even care anymore. Then I go to Taco Bell and do the same thing all over again. You know it's true. (laughs) They've been waiting for a really long time. And then suddenly, a baby boy is born. He comes into the world. In fact, John uses this description. I love John's nativity. If you've ever read the book of John, you may be thinking to yourself, um, there's no nativity. But there actually is a nativity in the book of John. It's just not like the other nativities. John actually describes light being born into the world that people who dwelled in a great darkness, he's actually using some of Isaiah's language here, people who dwelled in a great darkness have seen a light. The light dawned on them. He came into the world. He created the world. And now he's here on the scene in flesh and blood. But listen to how he describes it. John chapter 1, verse 9. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Verse 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. Other translations say the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word is tabernacled among us. He moved into the neighborhood, God with us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. God, Emmanuel, God with us in sacrificial skin, came. 
born of the virgin, just like the prophet had declared. It's interesting because this brings me to mega churches. Yuck. I don't know about you, mega churches are disgusting. If you've seen all the write-ups about them and all the things on social media, um, my good friend Brian Cook from ACF, lead pastor over there, is here with us today, um, and, uh, and he has a mega church, um, and it's mega churches are just gross. And here's the reason they're gross. This is what I've seen recently. <laughs> here's what I've seen recently. Um, our church is in a mega church because we have multiple services, so there's less people in each service. That's what, that's, okay. It, you get a lot of flack, and most of it is built around this idea of it's all about the production. And you have to ask the question, like, how many lights are too many lights? If you have a hazer, is that bad? Everybody has a threshold. But lately, they've been kind of keying on in one particular church. Maybe you've seen this on social media, these reels that have come up, um, that have the drummers on the rails flying through the ceiling of the church. It's a large church in Texas because they have to build big churches because it's such a small state. Um, but it's a large church down in Texas. Here's, here's a couple of pictures of it. You can see it. They're, they're like wearing LED suits, and they do this massive Christmas production every year. Tens of thousands of people show up for the Christmas production. On the other bottom right corner um, are the angels. They're flying through the ceiling. And I just look at this, and I'm like, oh, Lord, would you bless us with... Like, I could come in every Sunday in a harness on the rails. It would, just, it would be so, so epic. And basically, the reel says something like this. Um, uh, Jesus, born in obscurity to a no-name family and a no-name place in poverty in a nondescript way, the humble Savior. Mega churches, right? That's kind of how it's, how it's described. And yet, as I read through the narrative, I don't find that same description of Jesus' birth. In fact, I think you would be hard-pressed to compete with what happened on that night when he was born into the world, just to be fair. I mean, if you were trying to reproduce those events, I don't think you could even come close. Uh, this picture that I took, no, I'm just kidding. This, listen to the description, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. And the radiance of the Lord's glory in LED lighting surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. This is a pretty good start to the introduction of Jesus to humanity. But wait, there's more. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on the earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, what? let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they do. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. There was the baby lying in the manger. Now listen to this. After seeing him, the shepherds told who? Everyone. The shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. 
This is anything but nondescript. This is anything but obscure. Like they are running through the town of Bethlehem. It is no longer a silent night. I can guarantee you that. They're like, you won't believe what just happened. Right? They're telling everybody they can about the experience they just had when the host of heaven's armies showed up on the scene and the glory of God shone around them. And then they bust out in song and then head back to heaven. Like, you got to hear what happened. And all the people are astonished at what has been declared. It is not indiscreet. It is not quiet. It is not, it is absolutely fanfare. That's how it's described. Fast forward two years, Jesus having his two-year-old birthday. He was a perfect kid, so there were no terrible twos. And there he was, quietly in the home, with Mary and Joseph, still in Bethlehem. And this is when the wise men or the magi arrive on the scene. Now, just in case you've got your magi with your manger scene, it's fine. Nobody really cares. But just know it was two years later and they were in a house at this point, according to the text. And they show up on the scene and we're not told if there are three. So I don't know where we three kings of Orient are came from. We don't know if they were riding camels or if they were riding donkeys. And all that is absolutely irrelevant. What we do know is that somehow they were watching for the birth of the king of the Jews. In fact, they had been watching for generations. Most scholars believe that they were somewhere in the Persian Empire and that they had access to the same writings that Daniel had access to when Israel was in captivity there. And through those scriptures, the prophetic scriptures of Jeremiah and Isaiah and other prophets, they came to the conclusion that this event was going to happen and there was a sign in the heavens that we could be looking for, like it says in 2 Samuel, and that we could actually go and we could meet the king that was going to be born into the world. And so at Jesus' birth, they take off on the journey to find the king of the Jews. And they show up in Bethlehem. They gather there and they are going to ask around to find out, how can we find this king? So of course, the first stop has got to be with Herod, the current king. I mean, surely he was born into Herod's household if this king was born at all. And so they come. About this time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. Just to be clear, King Herod was deeply disturbed, period. Like, he was brutal. He was suspicious. He was paranoid to an extreme, to the degree that he killed numbers of his own sons out of fear that they would grow up to take over his kingdom from him. So when he hears about this, he is very alarmed. We came to worship him when he heard this, as, they, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's supposed to be born. And so he sends the Magi off on a fake mission to find the Messiah and then come back and report to him so that he can kill this child who's been born. My point is this, that the birth of Jesus was not obscure nor inconspicuous, but it was certainly unexpected. After waiting for so long, 
The expectations were so high. In particular, under the rule of the Roman Empire, they wanted to be rescued. But make no mistake, from the time of Jesus' birth until the time that the Magi come, everybody knew that a king had been born. They were just waiting for him to reveal himself. In fact, Herod is so certain that this is true that he proceeds to have all children, two years old and under, all male children, two years old and under, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, killed in hopes that he could kill this king. People knew. It's time. Emmanuel, God is with us again. In fact, if you fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, as he's standing before Pontius Pilate. In fact, I love this painting. I'd never seen it before. All the others look radically different than this one of Jesus' trial. But in this one, he's kind of like standing before Pilate, and he's like, you talking to me? I kind of like it. He's not remotely afraid. He's intent and listening. And in this interaction, Pilate asks him an interesting question. It's not an accusation that was made by any of the religious leaders. They've accused Jesus of being a blasphemer. But Pilate asks a really interesting question. This is his question. Now, Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, and he asks, are you the king of the Jews? That wasn't the accusation, but it's in Pilate's mind. This man, I think this man is that man. He's the one who rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. He's the one everybody was celebrating. And now he's in front of me. He's been brought to me by his own people. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you said it. Or it's as you have said. You've declared it. I'm not denying it. It's exactly who I am. In fact, all of the Romans are convinced that this man is the king of the Jews. When Jesus is turned over to the guards and then they take him out to beat him, listen to what they do. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown, not because that was a common practice, but because they wanted to make a crown for the king of the Jews, and put it on his head. And they placed a reed in his right hand as a scepter. And they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, king of the Jews. Even up until this moment, the belief was, this is him. This is the one Isaiah's prophesied. At any moment, he's going to turn the tables. He's going to shift the tide. He's going to rule and reign. The, the disciples fully expected this of Jesus. In fact, they were fighting and debating over who got to sit at his right hand whenever he sat on his throne. And everything they believed was that this was now and it was physical. And then he dies. Expectations were just through the roof. Seven 120 years we have been waiting for this moment. From the time everything fit up until now. I know you're probably thinking, how did they miss it? How did they not know that this was the Messiah? He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. Didn't they read all of the prophecies? But the prophecies also declare some other things that I think you and I probably would have missed it as well. We would have had expectations that were unmet in this moment. And then he dies. And I know, maybe you're thinking, but he rose again. Yeah, and then he left. But he's coming again. It's a spiritual kingdom. But when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of oppression, when you're in the midst of loss, 
You don't want a spiritual kingdom. You want a real king. You want him to come and sit on a real throne. You want him to defeat your real enemies. Everything you're looking for points in one direction, and Jesus did not meet their expectations in this moment. After more than 750 years, their Messiah did not meet their expectations, at least not in the ways they were expecting him to. Which brings me to bacteria, x-rays, and baby Jesus. I don't know, maybe you're one of the flat earth people. Um, I'm just going to say it out loud. At the risk of the emails that will come in, the earth isn't flat. But besides that, how many of you believe bacteria is real? Yeah. I want you to just look around. How many of you can see the bacteria on your neighbor? (laughs) Trust me, if you can see it, it ain't bacteria, it's lice. Uh, but anyways, it's, it's two different things. But if you don't believe bacteria real, even though you can't see them, I dare you to tell my mom that they're not real. Like my mom's a pediatric nurse practitioner. She will inform you in no uncertain terms, bacteria are very real. That's why you have to wash your hands because germs in Jesus are everywhere. Right? That's the soap dispenser in her bathroom. Bacteria, are x-rays real? Because I can't see x-rays, but that doesn't make them any less real. Is something less real because it's more difficult for me to perceive? But that's sort of the argument that's often made in relationship to Jesus being the deliverer or the kingdom actually coming because Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven a lot. In the New Testament, more than 125 times he references the kingdom. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is among you. The kingdom is around you. The kingdom is within you. The kingdom, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. That the kingdom of heaven is an unstoppable kingdom. He is clearly declaring that already something has happened in the eternal realm, in the kingdom, in reality. And while this is true, this observation that the unseen realm is no less real, but it is less easily perceived, it is perceivable if your expectations are set in the right place. In fact, if you were to look forward into, or look back into the Old Testament and you were looking to 2 Kings chapter 6, there's an event with um, Elisha the prophet. And in this particular encounter with Elisha, Elisha has gathered together a school of prophets. It's a bunch of young men who are being raised up to be prophets in the nation of Israel. And there's some extraordinary encounters that they have together. But one of the things that's happening is Elisha is routinely declaring the plans of Israel's enemies to Israel's king. And every time Israel's enemies come to defeat Israel, Israel already is prepared for them. They're able to ambush them. They're able to thwart those plans. And the other kings of the nation around are getting so frustrated. And what they've concluded is there must be a spy among us. And so he begins the hunt for the spy. And his people come back to him and they're like, there's no spy. We can tell you who it is. There's a prophet in the nation of Israel. And this prophet is declaring your plans to their king. And he's like, well, I know how to fix that. Let's get an army together and go kill the prophet. So he does. He gets an army together, and he sends them to Dotham. Dotham City. We're Batman. No, he sends them to Dotham. They go to Dotham, and there they surround the city. This is a small community. They do not have an army of their own, and this is where the school of the prophets live, not the school of the warriors. And so when all of the other prophets see this army in the morning that has surrounded them, they are justifiably terrified. Here's what it says, 2 Kings 
chapter 6, verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. That's not a good day. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the eyes, the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. The unseen realm is no less real, but it is more difficult to perceive. And he says, God, would you just give him a chance to see what's really going on? And this same host of heaven's armies that show up in the field with the shepherds and declare the glory of God has come to the earth, this same host of heaven's armies is also right here with Elisha and these men. And Elisha says, see, there's more of them with us than there are against us. And it's absolutely true. And then God supernaturally delivers them from the hands of their enemies. It's no less real, even though it may be more difficult to perceive. And here's the problem, that often you and I develop these expectations for what the deliverer is going to be, for what it's going to look like for God to be with us, but all of our expectations are actually crammed into this moment. If God doesn't show up and do this, then he might not be real. And yet, in the past, we've had encounters with him. We've discovered him along the way. We've clearly seen his hand at work, and now we will dismiss him because he doesn't show up in the way we want him to in this moment right here and right now. It's like the birthday party. All the expectations are built, and then you get to the day, and there's no giraffe in the living room because we just couldn't find a giraffe to put in the living room in Alaska, and it would have died before the birthday even came, but everyone must hate me, and my birthday is a failure. We have this tendency, and just let me push it beyond that. Maybe it's not this moment, this relationship, this marriage, these children, this financial crisis. We tend to put all of our expectations of how God should show up on this lifetime, which in the scriptures is described as a blink and a breath and is over. And yet, if he doesn't show up in the way I want him to show up, he must not be real. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to spend our last few moments here. Not our last few moments ever, but our last few moments. Maybe. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. I think many of us read a passage like this and we're like, yep, must be in the last days. There's scoffers everywhere. Uh, I want to clarify some language for you. When the scriptures use the term the last days, they are talking about from the time Jesus was born. In fact, Jesus describes from that time forward as these last days. We confuse the term last days with another term in the scriptures, which is the day of the Lord. 
a day when judgment will come, the end times, all of those types of events. But what he's really describing is from the birth of the Messiah, from the time Jesus came until our very day and on into tomorrow, scoffers and mockers will say these things. Scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. You've heard this argument, right? Like if Jesus is real, why hasn't he come back yet? Do you know how long it's been since he was here before? I mean, like, is he really going to come? Is he really going to establish his kingdom? Is he really going to be the Messiah? Is he going to be Emmanuel, God with us? That somehow the absence of Jesus here in the flesh right now is evidence that he doesn't exist at all. But listen to the logic that Peter uses. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. They forget that when God shows up to bring judgment, when God shows up to make things right, there is a destruction that comes along with that judgment. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Be really careful right here, because depending on what you've experienced in your life or how you grew up in church, you may be reading this passage saying, yeah, that day's coming. When all those people will get their due. But that is not why Peter is bringing this up. In fact, he's bringing it up for the opposite purpose. Listen to what he says next. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years are like a day. God doesn't view time in the same way you and I view time. You may think it's been a really long time, but from God's vantage point, he doesn't see it the same way. And then he says this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come. I know you've been thinking about the Lord not fulfilling all of his promises in the way you want him to fulfill his promises, but I'm telling you, it is not incompetence on his part. It is sheer compassion on his part, that his delay is all about your good and not his inability to bring things to a final conclusion. You need to understand that when that day comes, there will be destruction, and he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to experience his goodness. It's true in your life also. That maybe what you and I perceive as the Lord just not fulfilling his promise is actually the compassion of the Lord on our lives in ways that we do not know that we need in this moment. In fact, I would say it like this. Maybe our unmet expectations have nothing to do with God's incompetence and everything to do with his compassion towards us. It's just reframing the conversation, which brings me to my final thought, discovered and dismissed. 
I don't know about you, but I do know that I have had encounters with God in my life that at the time were undeniable. I, I would just tell you, no, Jesus showed up and he showed off in this situation. He restored this relationship. He healed my body. And yet I have the same tendency that Israel had. And as time goes by and other expectations aren't met, then maybe that wasn't real either. Maybe that didn't happen either. This isn't just Israel that experiences this. This is all of us who wrestle with discovering the Messiah and then dismissing him in all these other areas in our lives. And yet if I were to ask the question, has he been a miraculous counselor to me? You bet he has. Not, not just in the future, right now, right here, he's been a miraculous counselor to me. Has he been a mighty God? Has he been my defender? Yes, he has. If I were to look at the names for the Messiah, for the coming deliverer, has he been God with me? Yes, he has been God with me. Right in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the trial, he has shown up over and over and over again. And a day is coming when he will ultimately show up in his physical form. But right now, he is being patient with all of us in his delay. That it is not about his inability to fulfill all that he has promised, he will fulfill it. It is the already, not yet, kingdom of God. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Maybe you've prayed these prayers before. It's usually in a time of crisis when a bear is charging us or we're about to drown at sea or something along those lines where, God, if you, I will. And then he does in some form or another, and it doesn't take long at all for us to be like, well, it was probably because, you know, I said, hey, bear, and that's why the bear actually ran off or whatever the excuse that we make for the moment is. The reality is what he wants you to experience is something much deeper than surface solutions to temporary problems. We put all our eggs in this basket called life. Even if it's 75 years, it's still a blink and a breath. And yet Jesus came for so much more than that. There is an unseen realm that is moving and functioning and flourishing right now all around us. And there is a day coming when his rule and reign will be physical and forever. I look forward to that day, but I don't want to miss this day. And as we come into this holiday season, into the celebration of the birth of this baby boy, may we be reminded that everything he promised to be, he already is and he will always be for eternity. And my prayer is that you would discover all of the ways that Jesus is currently your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting Father, your commander of peace in your life. And so Jesus, we just say thank you. Thank you that you long to remind us that you are with us, that you are Emmanuel, God in the flesh, wrapped in sacrificial skin. Each year as we come to this time, this time is just a reminder that that is still true and it will be ultimately true in eternity. 
but you know each person in this room you know those who are watching online you know exactly where they're at and what they're wrestling with in this moment and so would you open our eyes i pray the same thing that elisha prayed for those who are with him that you would give us the ability to see the host of heaven on the hills around us that more are they who are with us than those who are against us and that we would be reminded that the sovereign god of all the universe is still present and powerful even in the pain in jesus name we pray amen amen our prayer teams are going to be available on both sides if you have any prayer needs today hey church on the rock we love you you are dismissed we'll see you next sunday thank you for listening for more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect visit us at churchak.org or download our church on the rock ak app from either itunes or google play Thank you.